0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Hausen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering, or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Write Medicine is brought to you by Write CME Pro, a membership driven community that provides skills, scaffolding, and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. Instructional designers are the architects of learning experiences, and they consider how education is designed, delivered and developed to enhance learning. Dr. Parker Grant, the co-founder of IDLance, an instructional design freelance agency, discusses the learning process, how to use learners' experiences to optimise education and where instructional designers go for their story inspiration. Parker says in adult learning, what's really important to know is that all learning is experiential. What makes learning better is having a multifaceted approach, meaning you don't look at just any one mode of learning as the optimum, but the combination of many facets. To these ends, Parker uses concept maps to create learning experiences, and he finds that mental models help individuals visualize other perspectives and help to shift mental models this encourages consistent performance and improves outcomes join us as parker talks about the core characteristics of well-designed learning activities that allow us to deliver rich learning experiences for health professionals hello and welcome this is right medicine and i'm alex housen i'm here today with dr parker grant Parker is the co-founder of IDLance, an instructional design freelance agency that provides custom learning and staffing solutions to clients in higher education, corporations, nonprofits, medicine, and government sectors. Welcome, Parker.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.
0: Uh, it's great to, great to see you and to uh, listen to you talk about your work today. So, please share with listeners who you are and something about your current work.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the co founder of ID Lance, and we are an agency that provides uh, services to organizations of all kinds. And we provide instructional design and e learning development services. We even provide services in virtual or classroom based instructor led training. So, we have a pool of talented freelancers all over the country, in some parts of the world, and they come from different walks of life. And we find the best of the best, and we try to match them up with some of the opportunities we have with uh, the organization needing that support.
0: So how did you kind of find your way into learning development? And I should say that our paths crossed some years ago when you were actually doing some learning development in the continuing medical education world.
1: Yeah, I know. Time flies, doesn't it? (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so years ago, I started out in my career as a mechanical engineer. So sometimes I joke with people that I'm a recovered engineer. But after about five years being a designer for a jet engine company, I had the opportunity to participate in a weekly class that was serving high school students in my local area. They would come to the company uh, where I worked at that time, and once a week, we'd get in a, into a conference room, and I would um teach them some basics of mechanical engineering, just to give them a sense of whether this is a career they wanted to pursue, or even just go into college for that subject matter. And so when I got into that weekly teaching, I discovered that was my true love. So it was kind of a bold move for me to make, to do a lateral transfer from the engineering department to the customer training department, the same company. But it's a choice that I still think was the best choice I ever made. And I was in learning development, I think, as of last year, it was 30 years. So that's kind of how I started.
0: And how do you, you know, how do you think of learning and development? You know, how do you describe that to people who ask what that is and what that involves?
1: That is a really tough question. You know, it depends on who I'm talking to. If I am talking to people who are near that space, then I can describe specifically what I do. But, you know, if it's just somebody I'm running into, some stranger on the street, you know, I I just say, hey, I just help people learn better on the job. So, I just kind of simplify it that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like that description learning on the job. It's interesting that often, of course, in the continuing medical education world, I mean, learners are kind of learning on the job, but not actually necessarily in the workplace setting. They're often doing it, you know, online and doing it in an asynchronous fashion. So, that kind of takes me to, you know, the learning process and how that might differ for people who are learning on the job in real time or who are kind of learning in you know smaller chunks outside the workplace setting at different times. So, So how would you describe the learning process itself? Yeah. Well,
1: so in adult learning, what's really important to know is that all learning is experiential. And what I mean by that is an experience can be on the job. So whatever you're doing in the moment If you're treating a patient, for example, that in itself is learning. You might not be aware of uh, some of the explicit things that happen, but there isn't an implicit process. So you're building some tacit knowledge on the job. There's also that explicit learning that you have if you're, let's say, assigned to go to a class and you're learning in the classroom, or it could be taking an online course, but basically, all experiences is contributing to learning. So that's why we use the phrase all learning is experiential. And what makes learning better is when you have a multifaceted approach, meaning you don't look at just any one mode of learning as the optimum, but it's it's the combination of many facets.
0: So I wanna dig into that notion of all learning is experiential. But if my memory serves me that, you know, at least in part, it comes from the work of people like Malcolm Knowles and, and John Dewey as well. And it's certainly something that practitioners in the continuing medical education world, you know, focus on the idea that adults bring a lot of experience with them into the learning process. As a learning designer, as an instructional designer, how do you use experience to create learning experiences or to create, you know, or to, to optimize learning?
1: yeah in the ideal world, we would treat that with a series of uh concept maps, and what a concept map is is think of it like a drawing of what your mind is. so it's a map of critical components of a particular domain of knowledge that you're trying to craft for a training class, for example. So what you would do is you would interview experts who are familiar with many aspects of that domain, and you try to put it in a picture form. Some of the educators in K12, for instance, they use um, what I think they call graphic organizers. In the corporate world, you know we use what they're called concept maps. So when you are able to capture the concepts from expert, And the relationship between the concepts. You have a picture of one person's mind. But if you interview two or three other experts in the same area, their concept maps are going to be different. It's just because we were learning in a different place, different environment, different instructors, different jobs. However, if you look at the patterns across multiple concept maps, what you can do is extract a very uh, basic mental model from those. So when you have that, then you've got a foundation to work from to design new education.
0: And so just thinking about that process a little bit more, is there an optimal number of concept maps that you would want to start off with when you're thinking about, for instance, you know, designing a learning activity on optimizing dosing for atrial fibrillation? <laughs> for you know anticoagulants in the concept of in the context of atrial fibrillation. Just just as an example. A learning activity for prescribers in a particular field. It, you know, is there an optimal number of concept maps that you'd want to be starting off with as the designer in order to think about designing that education? Yeah.
1: Good question. All the concept maps that I've done in my corporate years, I found typically if I get at least four maps I have enough to work with. But for each map to generate, it could take an hour to two hours by interviewing that expert. But once you have that on flip chart paper or digital tablets, whatever source you use, you can kind of look at the patterns across those. In real life, it doesn't make sense to use up all your time to interview every expert out there. It's just not practical. But if you can find you know four subject matter experts even five or six if you have them then i think you've got enough to work with
0: and then what would be the next step after concept mapping
1: so the next step is you draft a what i would call a common mental model that you believe is evident by looking at all four once you draft that up then you get some feedback from the same subject matter experts you interviewed and see if it makes sense But I've taken the extra step in the past in the corporate life is I would engage all of them in developing that common map because there's a lot of discussion between the experts. Oh, I didn't know you'd do it this way. So there is that shifting of the mental model amongst the experts.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about the mental model? When you're talking about a mental model, are you thinking about that as a kind of consensus? Or is a mental model something else?
1: Well, there is a term called shared mental models. So ideally, it would be good to get to that point if you have the time and resources to do that. So yes, it's consensus, but it's also um, it's a way to help those that are looking at others' perspectives to shift their own personal mental model. So when you get to that shared mental model approach, then uh, the performance would be consistent.
0: I'm curious how that kind of originated. So, so I know that the notion of shared mo- mental model is something that, for instance, Team Steps and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality use to train health professionals on things like situational awareness. It, the idea of a shared mental model is also something that you find in aviation crew management in the aviation industry in relation to safety, safety management. So can you talk a little bit about the history of a shared mental model and where that comes from? And is that something that comes from the science of learning or something else?
1: Well, shared mental models have been around in the literature for for years. Uh, I'm not sure that I can point to the history of it, but I do know that back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a professor, uh, Dr. Deidre Gettner, I believe was her name, she was one of the leading experts in mental models and analogical reasoning. So I think over you know, that body of literature and subsequent literature, some of their shared mental models came into play. But it's been around for probably a good couple of decades or more. But yeah, I think the ideal situation is if you can get a team of people kind of think in the same approach, the same framework then uh, you could increase performance and better outcomes that way.
0: So thinking about outcomes, using these steps of concept mapping and mental models. Actually something we haven't talked about is the idea of a needs assessment. Where does does that fit into the kind of design process? It can. Probably
1: not something that organizations are going to jump on and say, oh let's do this. I think they're more used to surveys or interviews in person. I don't think they would be expecting a mental model or concept mapping kind of exercise. But the answer to your question is yes, you can use it for an ease analysis, particularly when it comes to identifying gaps or experiential gaps. So if you already have a body of mental models or concept maps from experts, and then you can sample a few people that are not there yet, they're still developing, you can do mapping of what they think is the the solution or approach. You compare that to the expert maps, and then you can identify experiential gaps. So how you fill out those experiential gaps is is to provide them rich
0: experiences. So let's talk about those rich experiences. What do you see as the characteristics of well designed learning activities for adults who are who are working in professional roles, like health professionals?
1: Yeah, so let's say if you can put people in, say, work sessions that have a lot of variety of experiences and also more frequency of those experiences. That's what makes them rich. So let's say the trauma center is where lots of things happen, or ER. You know, you put a nurse through uh, experiences like that, in preparation for other clinical jobs, you know, those rich experiences carry with the nurse. So, and I believe you're a nurse, right? <laughs> or you have some experience? I, oh, I used
0: to be, yeah. <laughs> Actually, a trauma UR nurse.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Well, perfect. So you can relate to what I'm saying. You know, like in the aviation industry where I came from, when you we were trying to give uh, maintenance technicians more experiences or rich experiences. Some of the best times you can learn on the job is the midnight shift, you know, between midnight and 7 in the morning. The planes are um, parked. They have to do some routine maintenance or they have to check the you know, the faults and go examine the engines and, you know, make those uh, adjustments before the first flight in the morning. So those are the kinds of things that could be considered is how do we put people in those rich experiences, even if it's on a rotational basis.
0: My dad was actually a payload dispatcher and so and he worked the midnight shift. So (laughs) he always used to talk about, you know, some of the work involved and doing the mental calculations of payload in the days before, you know, even calculators and other digital tools. So you've mentioned the term rich experiences a few times. Is there a difference between experiences and rich experiences?
1: The difference I typically think of would be You know, like, again, back to the aviation example I have, is first shift might be a little bit quiet. You know, the planes are flying. They're they're all over the place. And, you know, once in a while, you might have a, a maintenance job to take care of, but you're in the maintenance station, sort of almost in waiting mode. So the frequency is less, and the intensity might be less. But in a rich experience is you've got lot. A lot more going on, and maybe even more challenging tasks to take care of. So, if you could find those rich experiences for clinical staff, then you're helping them gain, you know, that multifaceted approach to start connecting the dots, you know, between certain types of tasks that happen. And that's what makes it effective. is It's not just the classroom training. It's not just the e-learning, but is uh, what you're doing in a shorter period of time, in the variety that you have, as well as the intensity.
0: So what are some of the things that you're seeing that contribute to those rich experiences? You know, I'm imagining things like simulation and simulated patient cases, simulated environments where, you know, the learner can kind of pass through some kind of digital environment and make decisions about diagnosis and evaluation and therapy initiation and and so on. Is that the sort of thing that you're referring to?
1: Well, they would add to the multifaceted approach. The simulations, like in the aviation world where I came from, uh, yeah, being in a flight simulator, especially an FFS, a full flight simulator, it's very real. I mean, it does feel real. That can help with the learning process. In the real-life portion of rich experiences, there is a component of the feedback, which you get instantly is the consequence that you face. What happened to the patient. Or, you know, your colleagues or your, your supervisor, what kind of things that they said to you or, or what they did to you. Or the environment that you're in. You know, you think you have the supplies to do something, but all of a sudden you discover you don't have supplies. Oh boy. Those kinds of things. Now decision making through a simulation an online is a slice of that. It's not real life, but it is a slice. It does help because it's part of that multifaceted approach. So going back to that rich experience is nothing better than what actually happens to you.
0: Sure. But given that most, you know, professional kind of learning and development in, in the health professions, and particularly in the continuing medical education, continuing education world where, you know, people are, you know, having to get their their learning credits quickly. <laughs> you know, what are some of the things that can really factor into making something like a simulation a very rich learning experience for health professionals? What are some of the characteristics that we would want to see in that kind of learning activity?
1: Yeah, certainly um, scenarios are effective when you have a story that's threaded through that scenario, and it could be based on an actual example or case that happened. And when you review the case, you know, you look at what actually happened versus what's the ideal approach or path to take. And you can map that out using tools, you know, like digital tools to visually map out all the consequences that you can think of. So, yes, I think the characteristics would include. Possible choices that a learner might make. Something that's realistic. Not no one right obvious answer. But maybe three or four very credible, believable choices. And then learning the consequence of each of those. So yeah, I think that's a, a good trait. And I think the end consequence did it ultimately end up with increase patient safety. I don't know. So those are the things that you explore.
0: So when we're talking about, well, there's a few questions I have there. One is you talked about digital tools. What kind of, are you talking about branched learning here or or something else? And what kind of digital tools are helpful in mapping out, you know, those paths?
1: Yeah, any digital tool, really. I mean, I've always used PowerPoint just because I'm familiar with it, but I can create blocks and connect each block with lines. So other people use more fancy digital tools that are meant for that. There are actually concept mapping tools out there, many of them out in the market. But um, I I can't really recommend one over the other. It's, It's a personal preference.
0: And you talked about consequences. So how do we build consequences into you know the kind of rich learning experience that we're talking about in a, in a simulation? Are the consequences, are they text? Are they spoken? Are they something happens to the, the virtual patient? What's your take on that? Yeah, I
1: mean, if, if you get to the point of where you actually know what happened to the patient, that's a good consequence to, to share. You can also share consequences of what your boss would say. You could do that. It could be a consequence of what happened to you in the job, possibly. I mean, I think it's the, it's up to to the team to figure out what is it that they are trying to achieve. You know, in that particular exercise, are they trying to achieve understanding of the choices that you make, what happened to the patient, or is it something else? But I think there are different ways to treat it. Uh, maybe it's a combination of all of those, but. Whatever you do, you can map it out on paper ahead of time, test it out and see uh, what seems to be effective. Try to bring in a few students who are the guinea pig students to try this out and see what kind of reaction did they get when they went through this.
0: And you also mentioned feedback. Do you have a view on what the most effective forms of feedback are and, you know, the timing of that feedback.
1: Yeah, so feedback is better when it's sooner, you know. So it's nice to uh, get information about your choices fairly immediately after, and then you move on. The feedback can be verbal. It could be text. It could be a video. It could be a real person sitting with you. There's different forms of that. But also I think of it like learning is in chunks. So you go through a segment, get some feedback. You go through another segment, get some feedback. So you're building it in layers that way. That's why it's effective sometimes is when you're delivering, uh, let's say, an e-learning course, that as you're going through content, it's good to get those little quiz questions or knowledge checks intermittently as opposed to waiting at the end of the course and giving all the questions.
0: Mm. What are some of the things that you see in e-learning design that disturb you, (laughs) that you see as kind of examples of poor practice in developing learning activities for adults? Do you have a a bank of horror stories? (laughs)
1: Yeah, well,
0: for me personally, I
1: I see a lot of those page turners as the common term that we use. It's like a picture book. Or just picture a text and flip through slides. And not very engaging in the sense of engaging your mind in it. But I find some of the more effective ones have a variety of methods and they're also visually pleasing. Now, some make the argument that, you know, visuals don't matter that much. I'm of the kind of person who sees not only as learning design, but as visual design. I like both because there is an element of visual design that helps, I think, keeps the learner in the course as opposed to looking at this and saying, oh, this is awful, I'm going to leave. So, <laughs> but yeah, I've seen some bad ones.
0: Is that connected to dual encoding or is that something else? Which is something I was reading about recently in terms of, you know, having different yeah. different types of information and pros- at, at, at the same time in order to reinforce each other.
1: Yeah, I think um, some of that research that you might have read about from uh, May maybe some multimedia research. And, well, I think there's a lot of that, obviously, because, you know, when you have, let's say, captions for an image. You don't want to have the, the caption be away from the image. You want to have the right proximity. And, for example, um, there's another thing that I, I consider. is like if you have, let's say, a picture of a heart, okay? It's a clinical education. So you could have a drawing of a heart, and you could have these leader line to various parts of the heart, and you have numbers, right? And then underneath that is your legend. So if you go to that number, you would see, oh, that's this part of the heart. You can see the label. It says number two, aorta. Okay, got that. But if you change that drawing so that you get rid of the numbers and put the actual label with the leader line in there, that's more effective. So there is that visual design component that would help the learning based on that research. But there's also the visual pleasing kind of stuff. Does that heart look real? Does it, Do the leader lines, are the thickness of the lines appropriate or are they too thick? Are they overpowering? You know, are the font sizes big enough so that you can read them clearly? That kind of design is important as well as the, the stuff that you're talking about with dual encoding.
0: So there's, a, there's an aesthetic as well that is important to yeah. to kind of get right.
1: Yeah, it's not like you have to be an artist, be able to present something that is visually pleasing, but still effective with the learning design.
0: And that kind of leads me to text. You know, how important is, or, or what's the, the significance and the role of text in the kind of learning experiences that you're talking about? Do you see examples where there's just too much text or is there still a place for, you know, thinking about medical education and education for health professionals, there's a lot of complex and complicated information and data sometimes to include in a learning activity. And sometimes text, you know, we have to use text to get that information across. Are there optimal ways to use text? in the context of clinical education?
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm just trying to picture myself wanting to become a medical doctor or a nurse. And if I were to put myself into clinical education, medical education, what I would love to see for text is something that is relatable and simplified English for starters. But think of it like an onion. So that outer layer of the onion is your basic stuff. So when you've gone through the text that explains the basics, oh, the heart is like a pump. okay? Got it. It's like a water pump. Or an analogy of you know a human body. If you got to do a heart transplant, well, that's kind of like maybe changing a uh, water pump inside a car while the car is running. So that kind of thing is very basic, simplified English text. But that's the outer layer of the onion. But then you peel that onion, now you get into another level. So at that point, as a learner, you're ready. So you're ready to get into that more complicated language. So you get in multiple layers. So some of this stuff might be, um, especially when you get into some of the deeper term, there may be links. The links could lead to explanation of that particular term but allow the learner to pick and choose those links so if you're writing in a way that you can think of an onion and layer it then I think that's a good approach for text
0: yeah that's an interesting way of thinking about it I was thinking as you were talking though it's no surprise as a a former mechanical engineer that you you went for the mechanical metaphor of the body
1: well you know it's funny though I mean when you and I were working together Several years ago, uh, some of those lectures that we saw from, you know, from the clinic of the hospital that we were working with, some of the, the PowerPoint presentations in the physician lectures, I'm looking at that. I I've seen those diagrams, but it was in mechanical in- engineering school, especially when it came to cardiology. So it's the same kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, there there was a historical moment when that metaphor of the body as a mechanical problem began to emerge. But that's a kind of history of science, a history of medicine question. And we're coming to the end of our, our time. I did want to ask you if you know writers and other content developers are thinking about designing a learning or creating content for a learning experience in this onion and layered type of approach. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about when they're working with instructional designers, in order to sort of pull this content together? How can writers and other content creators develop an onion mindset?
1: Yeah, uh, a couple of things to start out with. One is the, a glossary of all terms, just a basic glossary. And uh, another is some of the more complicated terms or situation. If they can come up with those analogs or analogies, that would explain it to the average person, person on the street. That's a huge, huge starting point. And then, if there is a case study that supports this information, designer could help craft a story around that case study. Storytelling is important because people remember stories. So, if you have those elements, I think you know you're off to a really good start for medical education, and using that onion example I gave you, is figuring out how to layer that. So what do you start out with versus what's the next thing that you cover, and all the way down to the complicated stuff. And that's where you uncover all those complicated diagrams and charts and studies and statistics, all that sort of thing. It's hard to go right there, you know, if you don't have that outer layer done. Right.
0: And where do instructional designers go for their story inspiration?
1: Where do they go for inspiration for, like, creating stories and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, so I think IDs obviously always have to talk to, to let's say, that if they're talking with a medical writer, you know, they might poll the medical writer and find out, you know, are they aware of any stories or actual examples where this happened? They might talk to other clinicians that, you know, to get some inspiration. They may even look at some examples online and just, you know, make some stickies, put them on the wall, say, oh, you know, I found this on this website, and just sort of collect some ideas and thoughts. Once that initial brainstorming happens, then they can move forward from there. So with color choices, for example, how do we treat it visually? Do we have characters assigned in that course? You know, patient, doctors, nurses, that kind of thing. You know, do we have consequences identified? Are there elements of feedback to help the learner as they go through make choices? How long is this course going to take? Is it half hour, one hour, five days, whatever? So there's a lot of framing to do up in the beginning. So the inspiration, you know, for what they do is, I mean, I. I know many, many designers, but some are more on the visual side of things. Some are more on the creative development side. Some are just pure writers. So it depends, you know, who you work with.
0: Mm -hmm. And just to kind of wrap up, what's the single most important thing for you when you're thinking about adult learning? What do you want listeners to take away?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, because when we work with clients, they already have it many times. They already have in their mind, you know, what kind of time frame they're looking at, what kind of money they want to put into this, how much they want to invest in training their employees or staff. I mean, there's some leeway there. But we sort of try to get that up front to sort of know what kind of parameters we're working within. And once we know that, then we can kind of use our creativity to get as much in there for that time frame. It might be a choice of tools that you use, uh, or it could be the way you deliver training in person, whether it's a um, virtual thing, or if it's at a conference, for example, you you deliver at a conference. So there's different ways to figure out how to get that deliverable once you have framed that time frame.
0: And anything that we haven't uh, touched on that you'd want to end on?
1: Well, I would add that today uh, it's kind of exciting to see that educational technology is flourishing. I mean, it's really cool to see tools like 7Taps. You know, they have a mobile app, basically. You can learn about any subject, but it's basically you look at it on your phone, but it's a visual presentation of your information, and it's quick and easy to use. You just tap the, the slide, and it will take you to the next slide. It's a combination of videos, texts, web links, quiz question. Another example would be Ares, which is an a SMS-based application where you can use it on your phone. But it's great for, like, space learning opportunities. They use a drip content method, and you can choose how frequently the learner gets the lesson through their text. And you can interact with that text message, and it could be for 5 days, 10 days, 15 days, however long you want it. And it can be uh, also uh, delivered with images, so it's not just text. So you can look at images as well. And so things like that are kind of um, exciting to see because a lot of things that people are expecting today is something that's more convenient, something that they can do in a quick amount of time because everybody's busy. We're all on the go. And so if you can somehow deliver this in other means and not just stick to, a traditional e-learning format where you have to go to a classroom and sit down on a computer, take it at a certain time, or, or even just in-person training, you know, have to schedule that, and you have to book a, a flight somewhere to get there, take the class, come back. So, you know, those kinds of tools are exciting to see come out there, and not to mention all of the AI tools. So that chat GPT will sometime be great for medical education. I don't think we're there, but someday it'll it'll be there.
0: And that sounds like that could be another conversation in the future. Parker Grant, thank you so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine.
1: Thank you so much.
0: If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, Come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.